Hello friends, welcome to or welcome back to a Runner's Life podcast. In this episode, I speak with Dr. Nicole Harkin, a cardiologist, so I need to give some context into how this episode came about. So I've been using the Apple Watch for a while. I've had it since Series 4 and I've upgraded to the different versions. And last year I had the Series 7 watch and what happened, I was sitting down at my desk at work and a notification came through, but not just a regular notification, but one that came with a warning sign informing me that my heart rate had dropped below a certain level that was preset as something to be concerned about in the Apple Watch. It said that my heart rate had fell below 40 beats per minute for a certain period of time, and it actually happened another point during the day. So. I know as runners we like to hold this badge of honour that having a low heart rate means something but and taking ego out of it I was just curious to find out what was actually healthy and what wasn't healthy so I wanted to do a bit more research I reached out to some cardiologists and one that I really respect is Dr Nicole Harkin and if you're someone that cares about your heart health you like your technology want to be in track of these things this episode is definitely for you but before I get into that like I said I've been a big fan of the Apple Watch since series 4 I'm currently using the Apple Watch Ultra and I've had a couple people reach out to me and say what are the kind of pros and cons so the noticeable thing is the battery life has improved since the previous series watches however I still feel like Apple could eke out a little bit more I think it's almost an unfair comparison to compare it to other running watches because the Apple watch is such a phenomenal smartwatch it does so much so it does a lot but it would love if it could have a longer battery life it's better than it was before but I still feel like there's room for improvement the native worker app is improved. I like the fact that you can have a precision start. I know that other watches do it anyways. It just gives you more accuracy for your GPS. You've got the option to modify your workouts, which you could do before you'd have to do like a run and you'd have to tap it to do your laps. But now you can actually set specific workouts. They say, if you're going to do 400 meter reps or something like that you can set that up on your watch which is really cool i like the action button i use it primarily just for the workouts but you can use it for other areas so basically when you get out the door you can press it and if you're about to race for example before you had the option of having to do the three two one thing and having to time it but now you can cut that out and literally just go straight into the workout and run so if you're about to compete in a race you don't have to think about that in terms of the things i think they need to work on i've really spoken a little bit about the battery life I still feel like this should be a little bit more data analysis provided in the workout app. When you compare it to say like the Coros or other watches, I feel like they've got more data and especially as a runner, you really want to know and track that. So I think more data in the workout review would be greatly appreciated. But these are my early thoughts. I probably will do a in-depth review at a later date. But with that being said, let's head to the conversation with Dr. Harkin. Hi, Nicole. Welcome to A Runner's Life podcast. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. No worries. As a way of introduction, can you give the listeners an introduction to who you are, please? Absolutely. So my name is Dr. Nicole Harkin. I am a preventive cardiologist and a clinical lipidologist, which is a doctor that specializes in cholesterol issues. And I am based in San Francisco, California. I have a private practice called Whole Heart Cardiology, where I see patients um, and help them optimize their heart health. I am licensed in California, New York, and Florida, and have a mix of telemedicine and, and brick and mortar. And I just, I, I really love talking about optimizing heart health, whether it's lifestyle or, or otherwise. It's really fun. 
thank you for yeah giving us that overview and it's really interesting because i know we've got a lot of american listeners we've got some uh, uk listeners so obviously i'll put your links in the show notes as well so anyone's got any questions they can reach out to you perfect so basically how this podcast conversation came about was because i was using my apple watch and Apple watches have lots of different features, including a way to monitor your heart rate to alert you if it's high or low or if there's any irregular heart rhythms. And because I run a lot, it tends to be that I have got a lower heart rate. So what happens every so often is it send me a message saying your heart rate's lower. And the set rate is about 40 beats per minute, which is where the notification kicks in. So that's basically how this conversation came about. And I really want to ask the question, really. So for someone like myself who runs regularly, what is healthy and what is an unhealthy in this context? Yeah, great question. So in terms of heart rate, we, you know, technically a quote unquote normal heart rate, which uh, for everyone listening is just the amount of times per minute that your heart beats. It's typically referred to as normal being anywhere from 60 to 100 beats per minute. That said, in many individuals, particularly athletes, and we can get into sort of why um, when we talk about the different uh, changes that we see in the vasculature and the and the cardiac remodeling and all the other, uh, the autonomic nervous system, there's a lot of things that occur in the human body with exercise. And uh, one of those is a, a reduction in, a, in heart rate, really because of the emphasis in the, the vagal tone, which is sort of the resting tone. And so we see often heart rates that are, are much lower in the, the, the 40s often and the 30s even in, in really elite athletes. So what can be considered normal can de- very much depends on the situation. Now you take that same heart rate and say that's in an older person who's passing out and that's a new change. Uh, that is is pathologic bradycardia or slow heart rate. And that's due to rather than cardiac conditioning, cardiorespiratory fitness, it's actually due to a pathologic cause like changes in the heart that are causing the heart not to beat as in, in enough times per minute to to meet their body's needs. So it really depends on the situation, but by and large in healthy individuals, we really actually like to see the heart rate on the lower side of that sort of normal range. Higher resting heart rates have been linked to not only lower physical fitness, but also increased risk factors for heart disease like blood pressure and body weight and cholesterol. And so there's been several studies that have looked at what is kind of that optimal heart rate range. And certainly once you get above 80, definitely 90 beats per minute, we see that the the risk of death increases. That makes a lot of sense. And I just want to touch on something you just said there before. So, but for runners, it tends to be like a, like a badge of honor, you know, who's got the lowest heart rate. And I'm just trying to think like, not in a, in a song way, but like how low is too low, basically, like for someone who is particularly healthy. I know you talked about the example of someone who's in a, in a different sort of age category and other life conditions. Yeah, really, we do not. So while sinus bradycardia, which is basically the heart rate, the natural pacemaker of the the heart is called um, the sinus node. And it's responsible for generating that electrical impulse that tells the heart to beat. And so if the on our, the EKG, which is the, the heart test, the really basic heart test that we do that looks at your electrical rhythm of your heart, if it's coming from that, the sinus node or your natural pacemaker, 
really it's how low is too low is really predicated on the situation and whether or not you're having symptoms, whether or not your heart rate rises appropriately with exercise and things like that. So it's, it's really unusual or would be incredibly rare for an individual to have such a low resting heart rate due to a very high cardiorespiratory fitness and have symptoms and have that be pathologic. So always a good idea to check in with your doctor if you're worried about your heart rate, but generally if you're not having symptoms and your heart rate increases appropriately with exercise, it would be very unusual for that to be kind of a pathologic phenomenon that makes sense so generally if it's fairly stable throughout obviously in rest and exercise and if something's abnormal within those times then it's something to obviously then talk to your doctor get medical advice for Exactly. And symptoms, again, being kind of paramount here. So if you're having, you know, feeling lightheaded, particularly with exertion, or if you're having palpitations, extra heartbeats, things like that, those would definitely be reasons to check in with your doctor because there may be something else going on other than just a slower heart rate because of your, your fitness. That makes sense. So can you talk a little bit about the role that technology has to empower people with the health information? I know there's a lot of fitness devices and I've talked about the Apple Watch and other smart devices that claim to help you recognize things earlier or, um, you know, give you that extra piece of information. What's your sort of take on it? Do you think it's too much? What's the pros and cons? Yeah, I think it really depends, again, on the person. Uh, a lot of my patients are, are really big fans of these trackers. You know, they've got the Oura Ring and the Apple Watches and, you know, all the things. Um, and I think it, it really depends on what are your goals? What are you going to do with the information? And at the end of the day, is it going to help you reach those goals or or harm you. And certainly I have definitely seen some people who the overwhelming amount of data becomes truly kind of paralyzing. They're not sure what to do with the information or they become really concerned about say, you know, the HRV, which we can talk about, isn't where they think it should theoretically be and how can they change that? So I think it really depends on how you plan to use the information. Um, And so in general, they can be great. I've definitely had patients who particularly with some of the newer devices where they can get, you can get, you know, a one lead EKG. Well, that's not a good way to, to detect heart attacks because it's not enough data points. It can be really good for identifying rhythm issues, uh, like say atrial fibrillation, the most common arrhythmia that we see. So if people are having very, very intermittent symptoms of palpitations or lightheadedness or something like that, it's it's hard to capture on sort of a traditional um, monitor, Holter monitor, or even these other monitors that we, we can put on people for 14 days. So in those situations, they can be really, really helpful. And, um, and, it, and it also, you know, for sort of more, general purposes, athletes, biohackers, things like that. Tracking things like your resting heart rate, as we discussed, can be helpful to kind of be looking at things. Tracking your HRV, which is a measure of the variability, the beat-to-beat variability in your heart rate. Things like that can, you know, be helpful for people to sort of if they're really interested in optimizing. The EKG, as I, I mentioned, can be be really helpful. It does have some false positives, certainly. And then, you know, there's other things. There, there's been some cool studies that have come out with 
you know, looking at COVID actually. And the there was one study that showed that they were able to detect COVID essentially in patients who were wearing their smartwatch before they even developed symptoms. And so some of the first changes that they actually saw was alterations in um, the t- time of sleep, their heart rate, their HRV, things like that. So that can be really, you know, interesting and cool and novel purposes for using these things. I think just like with anything or any sort of technology for sure, using them, you know, mindfully. Sorry if it sounds like a really basic question, but I just thought this connected what you just said to what I said earlier. So the heart rate variability is basically measuring, like we see the differences between what should normally be happening to something that's slightly extreme for that person. So heart rate variability, so actually what it ends up measuring, and it is a very confusing concept, so it's definitely not a silly question. So what it actually measures is the time in between your heartbeats. That's So in between one heartbeat to the next, that's your RR interval, if you will. Okay. And so what the HRV measures is actually that R to R variability. So from the first heartbeat to the second heartbeat, how long is that? And then compare from the second heartbeat to the third heartbeat. And naturally, it's it's normal for those that that time in between heartbeats to vary, i.e., not be the same amount of time. And that's due to you know the interplay in particular between your on with your autonomic nervous system. So the interplay between your parasympathetic system, which is kind of the quote unquote rest and digest, the vagal tone, kind of the slowing things down versus your sympathetic, which is the fight or flight tone. So in young, healthy people in general, we tend to see more variation. So variation is a good thing, meaning you want to have a higher HRV. And this is because then you have relatively more parasympathetic activity or that heightened vagal tone, which we do know potentially can impact our risk of adverse cardiovascular outcomes, death, and things like that. You know, there's definitely, and that's, and that's one of the changes that we see with actually exercise is that you tend to have uh, more parasympathetic tone. The issues with the HRV, and, and, and we certainly see that, you know, having a reduced HRV is associated with mortality and increased cardiovascular events. It's obviously not the most important thing, but it, it might be a factor. Where it gets complicated is that there's definitely a very considerable range of normal values, even within people of the same age and gender. And so it kind of becomes really difficult once you start really looking at your HRV. And if you're dissatisfied with your HRV, what what's normal versus not. And so typically what I end up discussing with my patients is focusing on their own personal HRV as opposed to comparing to somebody else because... We still don't know all the variables, but certainly there are likely genetic as well as tons of other environmental, you know, things that can impact your HRV. And so it's a little bit more useful rather than comparing to somebody else to really monitor, try to monitor changes in your own personal HRV and see what you can do, namely increasing exercise and other things to improve that number. Thank you for clearing that up. And what's your sort of thoughts on kind of electrical heart sensors such as ECGs on Apple watches and things like that. Do you think they're helpful? Yeah. So I think it, again, depends on the user and what your end goal is. I definitely have people that with every little extra beat that we all experience, by the way, they, you know, fixate on capturing it and sending it and and things like that. So again, it can become a tool in which 
if you're already prone to being sort of nervous about these things, getting a little bit more fixated on on everything. And so for those people, we have them back off a little bit on, on tracking stuff. But as I said, for other people, you know, I've definitely, and to be clear, I have had lots of patients where the Apple Watch will alert them that they have an irregular rhythm. And it's really just a pronounced sinus arrhythmia, which is a pronounced HRV, right? How uh, very high. So it's really just the the heartbeats coming from that pacemaker that where it's supposed to be coming from, that R to R variability is just heightened. And so it's picking it up as an irregular rhythm. So that's probably the most common reason I see these false positives. You know, it can make people very anxious when they get these alerts and everything's actually okay. That said, I've definitely had cases where we've, we've picked up AFib, which is a, a rhythm issue that is certainly important to diagnose because you can your it increases your risk of stroke. And so diagnosing it and if appropriate, getting on blood thinners to reduce that risk is incredibly impactful. So it definitely can help in the right way. But then, like you're saying, like if you are anxious and you're just using it in that way, it can obviously impact certain things and how you, your outlook and, and probably your, your view on it. Yeah, exactly. I think it really comes down to an individual sort of goals and what what you're planning on kind of doing with all of this information. And also if you have someone to to touch base with if you do get an abnormal reading. It can be really anxiety provoking if you get this abnormal reading and then what do I do about it? So, you know, being able to ch- chat with your doctor about it and, and either follow up because it truly is abnormal or get getting reassured because it's not abnormal is important. And unfortunately, not everybody has access to that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So I'd like to move on to clearing some myths. One of the things that you do here is that running is detrimental to heart health. And there's lots of conflicting data, some saying that endurance is bad for the long term, but then also if you're living a sedentary lifestyle, that can be equally as dangerous. So what's your kind of thoughts on the balance of getting that right? Yeah, absolutely. And as you alluded to, it's really complex topic with with definitely some conflicting data points. But first and foremost, I think it's important just to to acknowledge that exercise is very much one of the most important things that we can do to reduce our risk of cardiovascular disease and all-cause mortality. It is incredibly, incredibly impactful. And and importantly, the vast majority of people are not getting enough exercise. So the problem of too much exercise, while really, really important, is probably only kind of a message that a very small percentage of the population needs to hear about. Although Again, still very important. And unfortunately, the area of exercise research, I think, has the most question marks. But certainly, there's there's no doubt about it that getting the recommended amount of exercise, which just for the record, is 150 to 300 minutes per week of moderate intensity exercise or 75 to 150 minutes per week of vigorous intensity exercise. Obviously, most of your listeners are getting way more than that. But that's kind of the bare minimum. And, and again, what's, what's not at all debated is that there is a curvilinear relationship between decreased risk of cardiovascular disease and death and amount of exercise you're getting. So you get a ton of bang for your buck going from like a sedentary lifestyle to getting that those bare minimums. Beyond that, we continue to see benefit. It, it becomes not quite as linear and, and not quite as noticeable, but there's definitely continued, continued benefits. And as you alluded to, it it starts to become on the very highest ends somewhat conflicted as to is there such thing as too much? 
And we certainly have some data that has shown in, again, some smaller studies and, and things like that. We, we do know that, for instance, things like coronary artery calcification, potentially rhythm, arrhythmia issues like atrial fibrillation, dilation, hypertrophy, thickening of the heart, we do see some of these types of changes in elite athletes. However, the data is less clear as to if that then translates into increased risk of cardiovascular disease. Is there a way that you can monitor that as an athlete during your career, or I guess, or through a period of your life? Yeah, I mean, so in some of the data, um, to be clear, like pre- for instance, with the coronary artery calcification scoring, that so that's a to be clear, that's a type of a CAT scan where we quantify the amount of calcium that's deposited in one's coronary arteries. And it's a test that is, um, we do in patients when they, they aren't having symptoms. And it's, so it's kind of like a screening test, a, a colonoscopy for the heart, if you will. And so it picks that up. And in, in the general population, we do know that that then translates into increased risk of cardiac events if your numbers are higher. What's less clear is if that's definitely true for athletes. And in some of these studies, certainly there was risk factors, individuals who had risk factors. So they're, they're athletes, but they you know smoke or um, have high cholesterol or what have you. Um, and so, um, but, but still, regardless of that, there, there's definitely a decent amount of evidence that shows that that individuals who engage in really extreme levels of exercise likely have higher coronary artery calcification scores. So I think first and foremost, certainly if you are an elite athlete engaging in lots of, of exercises, you know, much higher than the recommended amount, you know, one talking with your physician, Hey, what do you think? This is what I'm doing. What are all of my risk factors for heart disease, you know, optimized. And, um, and also, you know, just doing general um, cardiac screening. So these super, super, super elite athletes that they're highly, highly monitored, right? They've been screened, they get pictures done, they get, right? And they don't definitely don't have from what we know, and what what research has shown, they don't have higher rates of, you know, sudden cardiac death and, 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 and things like that. So I think many of us think that while there are some of these sort of, you know, question marks, very much so that, you know, as long as there's these kind of pre-participation screenings, if you will, you know, getting a baseline EKG, chatting with your doc and making sure that, you know, your cholesterol is in a good place, all these other things, blood pressure, you know, diabetes or, or glucose, all of that kind of stuff. And then as well as these, these screening type tests can be really helpful in, in making sure that you're, you're, you're safe to participate. That makes a lot of sense in terms of the cardiac screening. So I think that's a good point to definitely consider. And just touching upon what you talked about there, moving into my next point, cardiologist James O'Keefe in 2012, I think he is a report that he put out, and he was talking about that running can create a bigger heart in terms of like long-term excessive endurance. But essentially he was saying that uh, running can remodel the heart and and lead to large arteries. I mean, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, so it does. I mean, we do know that, um, but that, that it's it's interesting because that's actually part of why we know that um, or why part of the mechanism by which 
exercise is good for the heart. So the benefits of exercise, there's all these adaptive mechanisms that occur in the heart, in the vasculature, in the skeletal muscle that that impact our cardiorespiratory fitness and actually improve it, um, which is this, one of the single biggest predictors of risk of death. So we do know that exercise improves your cardiac output, which is how much blood the heart can pump out. Um, and, and that's by and large due to changes in the cardiac morphology. So literally how big it is, the end diastolic volume of your heart and how strong it is. Um, it also gets better at relaxing though. So just because it's, it's a, it's a little bit bigger, it's more efficient and it's relaxing better. And, and so all of those changes allow the heart to pump out more blood per heartbeat, which is why you can see these elite athletes, you know, accomplishing the feats that they can accomplish. There's also vascular adaptations. And so we see that the arteries do increase in size, increase in number. They dilate better due to nitric oxide production. Our muscles are much more efficient at taking up the oxygen and utilizing it. We talked about the autonomic tone changes. And then obviously exercise is also associated with a reduction in all of the traditional risk factors that we know about. It's also associated with less depression. Depression increases the risk of cardiovascular disease. So there's all of these incredible adaptive mechanisms that occur because of exercise. And yes, one of them is that the heart does change in shape. But again, there's all these other changes that happen with it that mean it might not necessarily be a bad thing. He may also be referring to some of the, the data looking at, they've done cardiac MRIs in elite athletes and um, you know, individuals who, who do a lot of exercise. And in some of them, we do see some fibrotic changes. They use this thing called late gadolinium enhancement, which is just a particular way that the dye gets taken up by the heart, which tends to be associated with fibrosis, which is not typically a good thing. But the area and where it occurs is not typically associated with rhythm issues. So again, I think we have to be very careful at how we sort of look at some of these some of these changes and then extrapolate that it must be bad. I think it's good people are asking these questions, um, but I don't think we sort of definitively know what it what it all means together. I will say that there was a pretty recent meta-analysis that looked at, um, you know, they, they narrowed it down to, I think, 40 different um, really good studies looking at, you know, is there such thing as too, too much exercise? And they found um, after throwing out, you know, some of the not so good studies, they found that, um, that cardiovascular and all-cause mortality risk um, was lower at basically all physical activity levels that they looked at. Um, and, and all they looked all the way up until about it was like 5,000 minutes per week, which for reference is like, you know, 10 times more or less the, than the than the current recommendations. And they found that, you know, they were continuing to see benefit, albeit at smaller increments, all the way up until that amount. So I think the outcomes data does definitely does not definitively show that once you get to higher levels of exercise, you're definitely increasing your risk of, of heart disease and death. And to the contrary, some evidence that it continues to be beneficial. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense in terms of just because it's getting bigger doesn't necessarily mean that's a negative thing because it's all in relation to other things. And like you're saying, you know, it's 
overall is a positive thing. And I was just thinking as well, like even when you're working out and you're doing stuff, like you, your body's got, aren't you? And I'm probably using the wrong terms, but you've got systems in place to make sure you're not going like 100% effort all out. So it's not like you're redlining all the time and working your heart 100% all the time, even when you're working out at those times. Yeah, no, absolutely. Our, our, our bodies are really good at telling our, them, uh, telling us, you know, when, uh, we've had enough and, you know, if you're starting to feel lightheaded and, and you're about to pass out, that's your body saying, you know, this is too much. I can't literally cannot keep up with the, the oxygen demands at this, at this time. Yeah, that makes sense. I know we've spoken a little bit about low heart rates and some of the symptoms, but in terms of like a physical symptoms, like what kind of things should people be looking out for if there's something like irregular happening, if they're runners or in, in this case of runners as opposed to like a general kind of person? Very similar to what I tell, you know, not non-athletes or sort of recreational athletes, you know, listening to your body is, is really, really important. And I know that it's more difficult when you're reaching these higher extremes because it's, you, you know, you're pushing through uh, certain barriers and things like that to achieve the, the goals. Typically, um, your body is pretty good at telling you when, um, when things are not okay. And again, for, so, so things that I, you know, worry about in athletes or think about in athletes are, are things like rhythm issues. And by and large, the, the arrhythmias um, that occur and cause sudden cardiac death are genetic in nature. And, and as I said, often we can, you know, pick up those types of concerns on just like a basic EKG or, and, or an echocardiogram. So, so certainly rhythm issues. So people can have palpitations for, you know, all sorts of reasons. We kind of all tend to have them. The heart is not a perfect system and uh, the electrical conduction system, you know, can, can set out funky little beat, extra beats here and there. Um, so most of us feel extra heartbeats or a skip sensation here and there. Um, but when things are, you know, to be, when you, you should definitely talk to your doctor about them, one, anytime you're concerned, but things that are red flags are things like it persisting for a really long period of time, feeling lightheaded or like you're going to pass out, having chest pain or shortness of breath. Exertional symptoms for sure are reasons to chat with your doctor. So any of those symptoms that are happening while you're exercising. So those are sort of some of the things that, that you want to start thinking about talking to your, to your doctor about for sure. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, and I know, speaking for myself, in my own experience, that sometimes runners and people of the like can be quite hard-headed. So it's good to actually know when to start to listen to your body. Like you're saying, sometimes when things are going wrong, your body does tell you. It's down to whether you decide to listen to it or you just push through. Absolutely. And you know what? It's always, and I tell this to my patients all the time, I would much rather have you go get checked out. If you're having X symptom, you know, just go get checked out, go to the ER, go to the urgent care, get checked out. I'd way rather you just kind of, you know, be, feel silly, quote unquote, because you got checked out and everything was fine versus ignoring something. Cause it's always the people that, you know, it, it, when you ignore something, that is when bad things can happen. And so it's much better to, to just go in and get checked out, talk to your doctor about it, get whatever screening tests they think were appropriate or diagnostic tests in that case. And then, and then that's great for that peace of mind too. Of course. 
can we move on and talk a little bit about some of the best and worst foods for heart health? Also, we're not going to go into a full description from breakfast, lunch, and dinner. We could. I love talking about food and heart health. It's like after exercise, well, probably even before exercise, I have to say, it's like one of my favorite topics. Honestly, just because it's aside from exercise, the other like huge lever that we can pull to really optimize our heart health, what we fuel our body with and put into our body really can have these like just crazy, crazy impacts on things like glucose and cholesterol and blood pressure. And at this point, we have a, a decent amount of data, randomized controlled trials and meta-analyses of, of, of big population studies that help us really kind of better understand what is these type, what are the, the best foods to prevent cardiovascular disease. And so really, you know, I think a lot of the trials center around things like the DASH diet, the, Medi- the Pareti Med trial, which looked at the Mediterranean diet. There's something called the Portfolio diet for cholesterol. Really what a lot of them have in common is that they're very high in plant foods and very low in processed foods. And does that influence the way it's cooked as well? Because you can still be vegan, for example, plant-based, but you can still live an unhealthy life. So I guess, is it like oven cooked or is it like frying and that kind of stuff? Totally. Absolutely. And to be clear, I'm definitely not referring to, to vegan, eating vegan when I mean kind of a plant, lots of plants necessarily, because you're absolutely right. You can have a vegan diet and still be consuming a lot of French fries and Oreos and other processed foods and things like that. So when I'm talking about having lots of plant foods, whether it's, you know, exclusively or just predominantly, or just having, you know, making sure you're always getting in lots of fruits, vegetables, grains, and beans and things like that. Those ideally are consumed in kind of their whole form, if you will. So eating the whole apple rather than juicing it. And then cooking isn't necessarily a bad thing in in many cases. So, So raw foods definitely have a lots of vitamins and minerals and things like that. But then actually, if you cook some foods, you you get improvements in release of these things. So it's like tomatoes, for instance. So it's it's kind of a mixed bag, but but definitely better to, you know, bake things, cook things in minimal amounts of oil or using olive oil, things like that, rather than than deep frying. Certainly that can release turn things into trans fats, which is by far the worst fat for our body yeah that makes a lot of sense and talking about oils i just this popped into my head why are omega oils i I know certain types of omega oils good for heart health yeah so great question that this is highly debated in uh social media which i find really interesting so oils in general obviously um can you know the the more refined something is typically on a spectrum of healthful versus unhealthful the more refined it is generally the less healthy it is now, oils are interesting because you can really uh, concentrate these omegas and either polyunsaturated omegas or monounsaturated. And so, for instance, in the, the PREDIMED trial, which I alluded to earlier, where they randomized people to eating either uh, a 
a Mediterranean style diet that was enriched in extra virgin olive oil or nuts. Yeah, and then compared it to kind of a low fat group, they found that the the people who consume the Mediterranean diet infused with nuts and olive oil had a 30% reduction over the course of five years in their risk of cardiovascular mortality, mostly driven by stroke actually. So we do know that these healthy fats, so again, monounsaturated fats and polyunsaturated fats, of which in polyunsaturated fats, you can have omega-3s and omega-6s. When you, particularly if you swap those in for saturated fats, like in butter, you see improvements in cardiovascular risk factors, namely cholesterol and things like that. So, you know, oils tend to get a bad rap because they are high in calories. They're very calorically dense. And so you do need to be mindful of them, but when used uh, appropriately, they can be great sources of, of these quote unquote heart healthy fats. Okay, no, thank you for clearing that up. And I just want to talk a little bit about heart rate in terms of comparing, say, in when you're exercising. So you look at, say, something like high-intensity interval training versus um, continuous aerobic work. Can you talk about the differences and how it relates to heart health? Yeah, so in terms of the type of exercise you're doing, so again, most important that people are getting that kind of at least getting that minimum amount per week. But yeah, really interesting thing that, you know, more and more even non-athletes are engaging in in the kind of the high intensity hit type style training. And um, we definitely, so so the literature is because of the popularity has only been fairly recently. We don't have a ton and ton of data, but we do have some data that really kind of shows us that, yes, you really got to get that minimum about, but if you're already hitting that, like what's the best kind of prescription, if you will, for say you're the, the average person who's engaging in a decent amount of exercise. And there's definitely some variability in terms of how it impacts our cardiovascular health. And so there's one study that looked at engaging in just sort of this moderate intensity kind of continuous training training versus different types of you know high intensity interval training and some of the research breaks it up into short segments that are more frequent some of it breaks it up into longer segments like 3 to 4 minutes with longer breaks so there's different ways to look at it but but in general it it does appear that engaging in some amount of hit like incorporating that into your exercise routine is is definitely a benefit when it comes to cardiovascular disease. And so so one trial identified, you know, kind of broke people up into those who reported no vigorous um, high intensity exercise versus some versus a lot. Um, and they they did find lower risk of of death um, in people who engaged in some amount of, of hit. We think that it's better at increasing your VO2 max and all these other things. So bottom line, anything is better than nothing, but if you can include some amount of hit or um, very vigorous, um, higher intensity training into your regimen, that would be probably the best prescription. That makes sense. Is there an age where high intensity interval training or the top end VO2 max should be maybe tempered and maybe you're working at the lower threshold for your heart rates? I don't know that there's an answer to that, but I do know that actually some of this kind of HIT training is, the, some of the research is in older individuals. And actually also there's a decent amount of literature looking at HIT style training in cardiac rehab in individuals who've had heart attacks. And it's definitely found to be, um, not only do, do they get some of, because 
as your risk for cardiovascular disease goes up with either because you have established heart disease or you're older, age is the most potent risk factor for heart disease, you actually, physical activity is actually, gives you more bang for your buck, right? And so it's actually most important that those of us who are at highest risk of heart disease are engaging in the maximum amount of physical activity that we can we can do, really. So I definitely wouldn't necessarily say that because you're older, you shouldn't be doing these types of activity. I would definitely say check with your doctor, make sure you're doing it in a safe way. And then as you point out, there's other concerns, orthopedic, you know, things like that. So, you know, training with someone who, who knows what they're doing. Uh, to make sure you can minimize and, and doing all the other things, right? The resistance training, like all the other things to, to minimize at risk of injury. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. As we kind of move towards the final part of the conversation, are there any sort of final points that you wanted to close on in regards to heart health for runners that we've not covered? Great question. You've asked a lot of really good questions. So I feel like we covered most of the important points. I think I would just say that, yes, there are certainly some, you know, question marks out there about, you know, is there such thing as too much exercise on in these extremes? And what I would say though, is that, you know, it's definitely a balance. And I, I certainly don't think that the data at this point supports the fact that you can't do these things if they bring you lots and lots of joy. But I would just, you know, make sure that you touch base with a doctor and, and get some sort of, you know, whatever pre-participation type screening they're willing to do so that you're you're doing it in the safest way possible. I think that would that would sort of be the because I think there the media gets hold of some of these studies and you know all of a sudden says exercise is bad for you, you know, don't do it, which is just, you know, obviously the complete opposite of what we want people to be doing. So we, you know, and then starts to kind of in, engage in this conversation of and scaring people away from doing exercise, which is just awful and is not most people's problem. So I think for the for the listeners, all of whom I'm I'm sure are kind of in this small percentage of people who are doing a lot of exercise, you know, listening to your body, checking in with your doctor and and doing it in a safe way. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Just one thing before we sort of close out is um, I know you did like an introduction to who you are. Can you share any of your social media links or the website that people can find out a little bit more about you and uh, get in touch? Yeah, absolutely. I love engaging on social media. It's a fun way to provide education and and stuff. So I'm pretty active on Instagram at Nicole Harkin MD, and there I share you know, all kinds of heart health tips. Um, most of it's centered around sort of lifestyle medicine and heart health optimization, but I, I cover all kinds of stuff. And then you can find me on my website at www.wholeheartcardiology.com. And you can sign up for my newsletter there. I write blog posts there. So if you want a deeper dive into any of these topics, there's probably something about it there. And then if you live in New York, California or Florida and you want to be a patient, you can also you know, check out more about my practice and who I am there. I also do international second opinion type things. As well. Oh, and I just joined TikTok. I'm still not sure how I feel about TikTok, <laughs> <laughs> but it. Uh, but I am on TikTok at Nicole Harkin MD. I should I should point that one out. That one's a that one's a fun. I it's a very interesting platform. I'm still trying to figure it out. They're all like speaking different languages, aren't they? To be honest, it's hard to get like you. It's like speaking English in Instagram and French, maybe you know, you know, in for TikTok potentially. Totally, totally. It's a very, it's, it's definitely heavily driven by Gen Z. So I, it's kind of, it's very fun, but yeah, I, I feel a little old on it. 
So no dancing videos and stuff like that yet? <laughs> no, okay. that's not my jam. It's just strictly <laughs> education. But I, I was surprised that people, I because I, that's why I had not posted on TikTok ever. I was like, that's, you know, those are for the kids. But honestly, there's so much educational content on it now too. So people are people are into it. So um, it's kind of fun. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Uh, one final thing I, I need to ask you, it's criminal I didn't ask you before. We spoke about food and obviously you, you kind of lit up a little bit about that. I mean, what's your kind of favorite thing that you'd go for, especially for heart health? Like what's your go-to meal? Mm, that's a great question. Um, so I, what is my go? Well, so breakfast, lunch, dinner, any of the meals, like just pick something. Yeah. Favorite one. Favorite one of all those things. Oof. I mean, Almost every morning I do have an oatmeal. So probably I would have to pick that. So I do, I'll do like a big batch of oatmeal, either rolled oats or steel cut in my Instapot. Um, and I cook them with usually a banana, sometimes an apple or another fruit, cinnamon, vanilla, ground flax seeds, chia seeds. That's my jam. And then I top it with berries and either nuts or nut butter. Um, and I have that almost every morning. <laughs> that sounds really good. That sounds really good. It's delicious. And it keeps me totally, I mean, it's got a great balance of fiber, healthy fats, antioxidants, all the stuff I need. Definitely keeps me full until lunch. So it's it's my go-to. If I'm not having that, it's something like avocado toast or a smoothie. But um, but I yeah, I, I like I feel like I haven't started my morning if I haven't had my oatmeal. Thank you for sharing that as well. And it's been a pleasure talking to you, Nicole. Thank you for being a guest on the Runner's Life podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I feel like this has almost been an opportunity to get a free consultation. So thank you <laughs> for helping me and for everyone else. <laughs> oh, my pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of a Runner's Life podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please do subscribe to be notified of new episodes. If something resonates with you, please let me know and share online. Also, you could do me a massive favor by leaving your review on the podcast platform which you selected as it helps the podcast grow. Your support helps make this podcast possible. If you've got any questions, please do get in touch with me on my Instagram page at Marcus underscore runs. Your time is valuable. Thank you again for sharing your time with me.